This is Megan, and welcome back to Dark Habits, where we discuss witches, witchcraft, the occult, the paranormal, and queer identity. Today, we'll be talking about Capricorn season, as well as our notable queer Capricorn for this episode, Stormy Delavery. First, let's get into Capricorn season. Capricorn's ruling planet is Saturn, the Taskmaster. Its style is determined and restrained. Its modality is cardinal, which sets initiatives in motion. Its element is Earth, and its symbol is the sea goat. The sun shifts from Sagittarius to Capricorn on December 21st, lasting until roughly January 20th. In the Northern Hemisphere, Capricorn season kicks off the beginning of winter, which also lands on winter solstice. Cardinal Earth signs, such as Capricorn, set up and commence initiatives. Cardinal signs start on all of the solar holidays that inaugurate the changing of the seasons. Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, the last planet visible to the naked eye, and the slowest planet in the solar system. It symbolizes the veil between the known and the unknown, ruling aspects of aging, endings, rules, boundaries, and the burden of collective history. Saturn is known for taking its sweet-ass time and appreciates going at a slow but steady pace. Saturn being Cap's ruling planet instills an ingrained instinct on how to conserve energetic resources. Thanks to the support of ruler planet Cap or Saturn, Caps know how to set boundaries. Traditionally, Capricorn has been one of the more misunderstood of the signs, yet their skills at boundary setting is a huge asset. For many, it takes years, if not a lifetime, to set boundaries with others. For Capricorns, it's an innate survival skill. In order to get close to a Cap, respecting their boundaries is essential. It's important to keep in mind to clearly express what your boundaries are instead of waiting for others to cross one unwittingly. Capricorns are the late bloomers of the zodiac. Their perfectionistic tendencies keep them constrained from sharing their gifts until they are satisfied, and they don't mind taking the nice and slow approach. They know that having some time under their belt first might be the key to long-lasting masterpieces. They only get better with age. However, this perfectionism can be a double-edged sword 
that holds them back from finding completion. And if they're not careful at finding a satisfying completion to a project, they risk ever getting their work out there to begin with. For goddess worshippers, Saturn in Capricorn is represented as the Elder Ancient One. Think of Antiqua from Jailbreaking the Goddess, a radical revisioning of feminist spirituality by Lazara Firefox Allen, or the crone goddess aspect of Hecate, to name a few. In tarot, Capricorn can be found in the Hermit as well as the Devil cards. The devil, Lucifer, is the light bringer. The light and sun are welcomed in at the beginning of Capricorn season. After December 21st, the light begins to return. The light and sun are represented in the divine child as the new solar year begins, and we ready ourselves to venture forth for another trip around the sun. The Roman god Mithras was born on winter solstice, and his festival was around December 25th. Some say that his cult evolved into early Christianity. After all, Jesus and Mithras were both considered light-bearing children. Sea goats are solo sailing adventurers who are able to dive to the depths of the darkest parts of the ocean and scale the highest peaks. In their quest for knowledge, they climb to impossible heights and soak in creative waters. While quite austere on the surface, Capricorns feel profoundly. They just approach the emotional realm on their own terms, like they do everything else. When taken to extremes, Caps become too exacting, overly suspicious, belittling, and severe. If not careful, Capricorn can become as remote as its ruling planet. This could eventually lead to a lack of ability to connect with others. Rather than seeking out human connection, a blocked Capricorn can rely so strictly to their own personal code that it becomes all-consuming and alienating from others. Consciously working on openness to people, places, and opportunities is essential to keeping Caps from total hermitage. Capricorns take the necessary leap forward in creating viable structures that allow space for not just surviving, but thriving. Sun and Capricorns search out how to pragmatically put their resources to use. Being cardinal earth signs, they are earthy by nature and practical in reaching for lofty goals, making them the official overachievers of the zodiac. This natural sense of pragmatism allows caps to shine brightest, however, it would be amiss to equate pragmatism with being unimaginative. Capricorn sons are innovators who figure out ways to engage creatively with barriers and restrictions. In fact, restrictions are a welcome challenge for them, and this challenge results in great rewards however slow to pay off they may be. Capricorn season can be weighed down with solemnity and big changes. These changes can lead toward a journey of self-examination of our shadow selves. This time of year calls for some gazing into the abyss, 
which, while hard to do, is necessary for a deeper understanding on how to best evaluate our lives. We will be wading in the waters of pleasure, grief, control, and security for this. So managing how to learn to let go of some limiting personal codes in order to let the good stuff in will also prove essential. Capricorn season calls for us to get down to business and throw ourselves into personal or professional pursuits that make our souls glow, whatever those endeavors may be. Utilize the discipline and tenaciousness of Capricorn season to harness whatever weird and wild idea you've been nourishing and see if it see it through to fruition. Thanks for joining us. And now on to our conversation about our notable queer Capricorn sun sign, Stormy Delivery. This is Macon, and today I am joined with my best friend, Ryan, who is in Oakland, California, and I am, as always, in Brussels, Belgium. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Megan. So good to see you this morning slash evening for you. <laughs> it's good to see you, too. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How Hopefully was your New Year? Um, t- our New Year's was so good. Yeah. I I generally hate going out on New Year's because it's amateur hour and people's expectations are really high and people are fucked up. <laughs> and they turn into toddlers. It's like being at Disneyland. <laughs> yep. Um, so this year we decided to host a taco bar at like six o'clock on New Year's Eve so people could come over for tacos and then they could go do whatever they wanted and I can go to bed early. Awesome. Um, but no one left. Everyone's <laughs> like, I just want to hang out at the taco bar. Who and wouldn't? So we, we just like hung out and played, um, board games and I don't know. It was like 15 or so people and it was, it was a really good night. It was That's really so good. fun. Yeah. That's great. Ten years. Well, um, at least and I imbibed in some of the chocolate that you maybe offered no. us when I was yeah. visiting you. Just and plain chocolate. Just Oakland plain chocolate. old, plain old chocolate. Nothing special at all about it. No. No, nothing. And I got to play with my new air fryer, so. <laughs> <laughs> That was an amazing combination. Um, And because there's this place in in um, that's in it's from it's a French company called Picard and they're really good at for at freezing everything and they have amazing quality food. So we went we had a New Year's Eve from Picard. So we just were like, okay, this is fun. Let's let's have mozzarella sticks. And gin and tonics. Nate and I bought a deep fryer at some point. Nate's my husband. Um, we bought a deep fryer at some point during lockdown. And we went to Target and we bought a bunch of frozen food. And we were like, we look stoned as fuck right now. <laughs> we were not. We were totally, um, totally sober. But I was like, based on what's in our basket right now, we look like we've been smoking weed since like 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we just and did we watch anything? Oh yeah, we watched some RuPaul. 
watching Drag Race because it's always good when you know you're eating totally normal chocolate to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, and then we hung out with the cats, and um, it was just a blast. We had a great time, and couldn't have been better. That sounds perfect. It was perfect. It sounds like we both had really good New Year's Eves. I was telling um the story to my friends who were over about New Year's Eve Y2K. <laughs> together in the co-op. And I don't know. It's it's so one of those when you go to art school and you have friends who didn't go to art school <laughs> and you talk about art school, people are like endlessly confused. <laughs> Yeah, hearing and just telling um we're on Y2K as people who are, you know, elder millennials like we are might remember, we were told that the world was gonna stop because all computers yep. were gonna reach midnight on the year two thousand and they would no longer work and everything would explode. It was gonna be the end of the civilization. Yep. I was excited. Happen. Yeah. It didn't happen. That that uh-huh. took a few more years until Trump was in office but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so we decided to have a hedonism party which meant dress up in wild cabaret clothes like boas feathers lace petty pants petty pants the whole thing <laughs> um and I, I, like the pinnacle of the night was we decided to take a roll of saran wrap attach it to the ceiling fan, <laughs> turn the ceiling fan on, so it made this, like, DNA helix come down, turn on a strobe light, mash it to the timing of the saran wrap on the fan, and then dance inside this, what looked like a stationary helix. <laughs> and we thought that was really safe, and it was totally cool. safe. Totally safe. And then what you know could what? go wrong? At midnight, the fan fell out of the ceiling. <laughs> right as the ball dropped. <laughs> right as the fan dropped. <laughs> um, and yeah, and the next day our roommates came home and they were like, oh, like what happened to the fan? We're like, we don't know. It just fell out of the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> it's Y2K. Of course the fan fell out of the ceiling. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, so Zach, if you hear that story right now, now you actually know. Guess what, why Zach? The fan fell out of the ceiling. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Being. I, I mean, and I love the fact that we didn't give two fucks about the Y2K. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think we were drinking that night. I'm pretty sure that we uh-huh. might have had like a drink because that was definitely in our. Oh, we have like one beer, and I would drink a beer for three weeks. Yeah, that was your <laughs> th- drinking a beer for three weeks era. Yeah, there was no yep. special chocolate. No, there was no, there was no, there was no totally average chocolate with no hallucinogens no, in it. You mean? Yeah, no average chocolate. No average chocolate. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Just, we were just wild to do it. Yeah, we just wore cabaret clothes. That was it. We wore we wore that was we wore cabaret clothes. That was hedonism to us. That was our hedonism, yeah. I mean, we were already waiting. We were waiting so long for the, you know, the comeback of the 1920s. Like, we were way ahead of the game from all the people now who are, like, having their 1920s parties and shit. We were so far ahead of it. We were really ahead. We were so far ahead. We were actually back in the 1920s. 
Yeah. That might be a really good segue. So what else happened in 1920? What else did happen in 1920? Well, I sent a little teaser video or watched the teaser video sent me about the person we're talking about today. Oh, right. There's actually a point to this. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's correct. Oh, my God. You know more than I do. <laughs> Let me just, tell you all about really good content to tease me with. <laughs> so, yeah. So we're actually here to not talk about New Year's Eve's past, present or future. But we are here to talk about our notable queer astro- um, Capricorn of 2024. Stormy DeLarvery. So let's get into it. So Stormy DeLarvery may be the most significant key player in the Stonewall Uprising that people have never heard of. Um, but she was instrumental in what went on and a major presence in LGBT plus New York City, particularly within the lesbian community. Stormy is a rather ambiguous Capricorn, however. Um, we will think of her as such as she declared her birth herself, she herself declared her birthday as being on December 24th, 1920 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Indeed, she was never certain of her actual date of birth. She was born to a black mother who was the servant of a wealthy white father. And eventually her mother and father would marry, and they eventually moved to California. But that's how it all began. So Stormy is an honorary Capricorn, and I think she wears the, the medal proudly. So her father paid for her education, and she was mostly raised by her grandfather, Growing up biracial in the South at that time meant Stormy encountered a great deal of bullying. The cruelty she experienced as a young person would stick with her for the rest of her life and inform her staunch zero-tolerance policy of discrimination of any kind. According to Stormy, the white kids were beating me up, the black kids were, everybody was jumping on me, for being a Negro with a white face. So she basically left school and was homeschooled and her father uh, paid for it and uh, made sure that she was taken care of. Actually, I think that um, her family life, she she was raised in in pretty good circumstances and he was, he was an active part of her, of her life. And so it was mostly her grandfather who uh, the, her white grandfather too. And um, so that being biracial and um, was just already the first thing that got her kind of in a precarious place just from the get go. Uh, Like so many of our queer ancestors, Stormy had a remarkable life, much like how our girl Jackie Shane got her start running away with the circus as a young person. Stormy actually did too, and she rode jumping horses in the Ringling Brothers Circus as a teenager. <laughs> like queers are magic. I'm sorry, it's just that, that, 
that just like gave me all the young teen queer maybe preteen queer unicorn the world can be anything vibes completely i mean incredible i know right and she stopped riding horses after an injury from a fall oh well um it happens when you're a horse jumping person i suppose that you know (laughs) (laughs) that is one of the the one of the problems you might have yeah, she wasn't just an equestrian. She was an equestrian. An equestrian, yeah. Equestrian. <laughs> but riding horses wasn't the only talent in Stormy's wheelhouse. She was multi-talented. She had a beautiful baritone voice, and at an early age, developed a love for jazz. She started performing in New Orleans jazz clubs at fifteen. And soon after, she was touring Europe as part of a jazz group. She realized she was a lesbian around the age of 18, and she began performing as a woman when she was in the jazz groups, of course, and later dressed in drag as a man. As an androgynous biracial person, she was able to weave through racial, sexist, and classist barriers She could pass for black or white, male or female, street or fancy sophisticate. After returning from Europe, Stormy spent a significant amount of time in Chicago. Woo, Chicago. There, she later told friends she was a bodyguard for mobsters. (laughs) Because, of course, she was. Eventually, she made her way to New York City where she worked as the MC of the Jewel Box Review. From the mid-1950s through 1969, she dressed as a man, presenting an unusual variety show, the rest of the members of the review being drag queens. Question for you. It was, mm-hmm. she was only dressing as a man for performance, mm-hmm. or she was dressing as a man 100% of the time? It was kind yeah. of back and forth for a while okay okay but yeah Mm -hmm. it was i think she started predominantly just doing it on stage at first yeah and i will i I also wanted to say for the listeners um when you sent me that little teaser video that i watched and seeing images like it really is um interesting that she could like quote unquote pass for black or for white but also she can absolutely quote unquote pass as like masculine or feminine like it, it it's really it's i don't know it's like she can live in both worlds completely really well and i was um i don't know i'm glad i have that visual so i, I hope yeah. you like post a link of it oh yeah you can kind of see like what that transformation looks like um because i was i don't know it's it, it, i think it's important to the story definitely because she convincingly you really couldn't tell when she was dressed as a female, she she looked like a female. When she was yeah. dressed as a man, she looked like a man. And, I mean, and from some angles, she looked like she was black. From other angles, yeah. she could have been white. So, yeah, yeah, she really, really existed within this gender and racial non-binary. It was like she was just born that – she was born yeah. that way. Yeah, I mean, fluid is what the term we use now, and I would mm. apply it. I would 
assume we could apply that to her, oh. you know, back in the day, just like fluid. For like sure. Racially, racially fluid, gender fluid, mm-hmm. class fluidity is what it sounds like a part of the story too. Oh, definitely. Yeah, because a, a lot of these reviews, these, these brought in like high society people. Um, and this also brought in people from the queer community, from all different economic brackets. So she really was someone who could just flow through society in this really interesting way that, especially back then, was very hard to do. Cause since things were so much more racially segregated, mm-hmm. gender segregated, class segregated than they are now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, she was just uh, really an unusual person living in a time when that was not something that was thought of as a very positive thing at all. So she and she saw it all. She really did see it all. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the stars of the show of the Jewel Block, the Jewel Box Review was Lynn Carter, a renowned female impersonator who would eventually go on to perform at Carnegie Hall, which is something I've never even heard of. No, that's something worth looking into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what's her sign? I know, right? The jewel, I never have heard of a drag queen in that, especially back, back in the back in olden days, like, yeah. Being at Carnegie Hall. Another question for you, um, uh-huh. the mayor, you answer to. Do you know if um, they were billed as gender illusionists, or yes. were they? Did they seem like they're performing in their uh, that she was a cisgendered woman performing as a cisgendered woman, the, the drag that, queen? That part. Okay, we're gonna get there. Okay, great, yeah. great. Okay, yeah. thank you. You're welcome. But yes, it was. Um, it was billed as an unusual variety show and that the and and the the um the audience coming in had already the expectation that they were going to see female impersonators on stage okay okay mm-hmm. which is already fascinating oh yeah like, at that time period like i i love that like that was a thing that was Mm-hmm. The show, and there was there's a safety there that is what I hear. So people Absolutely. know what they're seeing, and whether it's a they're seeing it as a quote unquote freak show or however they're perceiving it, there's still a safety safety there and a visibility there. Absolutely, and it's also very interesting too because in big cities like New York, Chicago, probably Los Angeles, um, drag was something that was that was. Uh, known and it was something that people straight queer did go see it was i mean drag it we think of it as a new thing but mm-hmm. i mean if you if we go back and look into especially in american in american history uh drag shows were going on from like the end of the 19th century in the US in big cities and they were really popular okay yeah Good context thank you yeah, and it's surprising because uh, we don't think that 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 would be the case, but indeed, um, it's an old profession. In fact, it's not new, and I like that. I like that we went to discover that. Yeah. Um, so, the Jewel Box Review was a racially integrated variety show that featured twenty-five drag queens and Stormy as the lone drag king. 
The jewel boss. That hasn't changed. Nope. It was one drag king and a mountain of drag queens. Oh, God, right? And some things just never fucking change. Yeah. Like, get it together, queer community. Yeah. We can do better. Okay, so... The Jewel Box Review made regular appearances at the uh, legendary Apollo Theater in Harlem, playing for both black and white audiences. So, really, it's it also kind of echoes Stormy's life. Everything was always from both sides. Mm-hmm. During a typical Jewel Box Review show, audience members were asked to guess the one girl which they called, in quotes, the one girl in the review. <laughs> and the language is so confusing to me right now, but I was like, but there's 25 girls. I know, what right? Who's the one girl? What are we Who's even the one girl? About? It's like there's 25 of them in this moment. Yeah. So who, pick the, it, basically in modern day language, that would be pick the one cis woman. Yeah. Who is born of the pussy is the question they're actually asking, because everyone's obsessed with genitals. That's really all it comes down to is good old genitals. Absolutely. Who's got the see you next Tuesday? (laughs) (laughs) BRB, writing that down. (laughs) It's the new Wendy's slogan. And so during a typical Jewel Box review show, audience members were asked to guess the one girl, as we already discussed, (laughs) and at the end, Stormy revealed herself as the one girl (laughs) during a number called Surprise with a Song. She typically wore tailored suits and sometimes a fake mustache that made her unidentifiable to the audience. And when you look at pictures, you really can't tell at all. Yeah. Um, during an era when there were significantly few drag kings compared to queens performing, <coughs> RuPaul <laughs> set the standard for New York drag kings. Therefore, drag queens throughout North America and Europe. So her performance in this review was completely legendary and really set the precedent for what we think of as like traditional drag king um, personality, attire, performativity. Mm-hmm. She was very much a pioneer. Pre-Stonewall, New York City had a law that required everyone to wear at least three pieces of clothing that matched the gender they were assigned at birth. For a brief period of time, Stormy tried to maintain this binary facade by restricting her wearing of men's clothing to the stage only. So to answer your question from earlier, Mm -hmm. going about during the day female in appearance. Even then, due to her gender precarity, she was arrested twice for wearing women's clothing because the cops mistook her for a drag queen. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I love it. I know. I, mean, I don't love that she got arrested, but I love this whole, like, um, gender fluidity story. 
I do. I do too. It's great. And, uh, and I love, and in watching her tell the story, she was so, she had so much personality. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she just was like, and they, then they mistook me for a drag queen and then like slapped her, slaps her, her knee. And she's like, damn it. I just love her. She's the super. Well, and it's like, and, and, and like the little bit I know about her, I mean, having watched her, I feel like she'd be like, I don't care if I was a drag queen. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. This is actually a funny story that Megan and I share from college when um, Megan, before Megan and I met, we had a class together and I had made friends with this girl and this girl was like a, a rude girl. People remember that look from the 90s, like severe bangs, Betty, Betty Page, Bob. Mm. And for like a couple months, Megan thought that this girl was a drag queen. I thought and she was, I yeah, was like a cisgendered woman. Mm-hmm. And then we met. She's <laughs> totally wrong. This other <laughs> girl was a cisgendered woman, and I was, you know, assigned male at birth, and at that point only using he and pronouns, and but definitely presented very feminine. Um, <laughs> and like, I don't know, when Megan told me that, I was like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> I like it. That feels affirming. <laughs> I'm not mad. <laughs> I was like, they look so interesting. And then I just made this this whole story about their genders because I was like, it's college. Anything's possible. (laughs) We were still in Kansas and it was still the late 90s. So, yeah, I feel like I like we're in a party. Absolutely. So I have like an affinity for for Stormy getting arrested for being a drag queen when she was this cisgendered woman presenting (laughs) as their gender assigned. <laughs> you just can't win. Yeah. So, uh, and there was only one way she could win. So she gave up trying to please the normies by conforming to heteronormative gender stereotypes and began dressing in masculine attire in alignment with her authentic gender identity. She did, mm-hmm. she identified as a butch. And began dressing and, and, um, she was occasionally detained, uh, for wearing menswear, cause again, there is no winning in a heteronormative society. Uh, due to, during one arrest, a cop criticized her bow tying skills. She responded by asking him for a bow tying lesson then. And, uh, that way she could get it right next time. So he was like, okay, sure, no problem. And so he showed her how to, how to, uh, to tie a proper bow tie. And, um, in a 2001 interview, she said that she could still perfectly tie a bow tie without having to look in a mirror. Um, and she also said that this cop, uh, really, really liked her. They became friends and he, frequently would go to see her on stage and uh-huh. always complimented her bow tying skills. So I love that. Me I mean, too. All cops are bad except for a bad cop. <laughs> yeah, except for that guy. He was cool. Yeah. Tying bow ties for people who haven't done it, if you tie a proper bow tie, it is really hard. Yeah. Like I'm a textile person and a fashion person. Mm-hmm. And when I tie a bow tie, I have to like, take a deep breath. It's like doing winged eyeliner and tying a bow tie are both the same. You have to take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. I know if you mess up, you can just do it again. Yes. But yeah, I love that. I know. Something really nice about, um, and I think this is a thing that I found with some of the younger trans guys that I've become friends with, 
Um, it's kind of like they didn't have dads to teach them some of these like quote unquote man skills. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, there's something really nice about this cop sort of being like, I'll teach you how to tie a bow tie. Like that's a thing that a quote unquote boy would learn from his dad. Right. You know? And so it's, like, it's nice that there's like this, like, I'm going to pass down these skills that yeah. you probably should have learned through, through a parent or through, you know, mm-hmm. as a child. Yeah. That's, that's what happens in, in a queer community a lot. Like we have to like sort of find our elders to teach us things that help us form our identities. Absolutely. And I just, I just love that cute. And it's such a New York thing mm-hmm. in my head, like a New York cop and a drag king and then like sassing each other back and forth. <laughs> and then the, and then the drag king's like, well, well, why don't you just show me? And the cop's like, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were both That's kind so of good. probably, probably being belligerent to each other, casually insulting one another. Yeah. And then they became besties. And I love that little friendship. So good. It's great. It's super New York, too. Like, I can just picture it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and also, you know what? He might, may have been a cop, but he was also really a, a decent menswear fashion guide. So we all contain multitudes. Mm hmm. Though not much is known, we do know that Stormy was in a long-term relationship with a partner named Diana, who was a dancer, dancer Diana. They lived together for 25 years until Diana passed away in the 1970s, shortly after Stonewall. And according to Stormy's friend Lisa Canestracci, Stormy always carried a picture of Diana on her right up until her death. So it's they were had a very deep love um it was also after her partner passed that she stopped performing and began working as a bouncer um according to nps.gov delavery called herself the guardian of the lesbians in the village She patrolled the streets of Greenwich Village with a concealed rifle, making sure all the lesbians and the street kids were safe. If she saw any ugliness, which was the word she used, she'd shut it down immediately. She continued doing her rounds every night, even as an octogenarian. Recounting in a 2002 interview, you don't do ugliness around me. Just don't try it. You're apt to wind up with your ass on the floor. God, I love butches. I so I was trying to figure this out because I was living in the New York in New York. Yeah. While she would have been patrolling the village with a rifle, <laughs> and I didn't live in the right neighborhood. I was I was actually living in Harlem. Um, when she would have been living in the in the in Greenwich Village, but I'm like, I don't know. I feel like I must have seen her at some point, just you like probably, in passing. And I probably, I, I, you know, who, who knows who I perceived? Because she could like live between like all these different uh, intersections. Mm-hmm. But like somebody walking around the village with a rifle seems like something I would have recognized. Yeah, that would have st- stood what out. I would imagine. 
I know. I was thinking that too. I was like, oh wow, the first time that I went to New York, she was still alive. She was still patrolling yeah. the village. Yeah. Yeah. In that video that we that I showed you when she was at the lesbian bar and everything, that was when we were, well, that was when you first moved to New York and the first yeah. time I came to visit. So she was there during the time we were there, yeah. which kind of blows my mind. I just, I don't remember the open carry laws of New York. It's a thing I probably should know, but I kind of <laughs> think there isn't an open carry law. <laughs> I think that if the only person who had it was her, yeah, <laughs> the like, probably I, the cop from the, who taught her how to tie a bow tie was like, "It's okay." Yeah, yeah, she's she she's grandfather. She, she can do it. It's fine. <laughs> she can do it. <laughs> <laughs> she has. She's the only person in New York City who can carry a rifle openly, which is another butch skill. Like that, I you know, as someone who is not really butch nor femme, that is something I admire. I, I find yeah. that hot. I mean, that was also like a time of club kids. So if I would have seen someone walk around with a rifle, I would have been like, oh, cool. She's going to the limelight. <laughs> like, I absolutely just thought that she was like dressing up. It's have it sex with your own gun night. <laughs> <laughs> the night of Stonewall, Stormy was 48 years old. And it's a misconception to think that the revolt, which happened that night, was one fought by only young people. She'd recently made it back into town and was out on her usual stroll in Greenwich Village. She said that what she would often do is she would, you know, she had a a bunch of places she would go and visit. She would find out if anyone was in jail and if they needed to get bailed out, she would go bail them out. If anyone needed help with stuff, she was there for them. So she was doing her typical rounds. And she walked up to the stone wall because she saw that there was shit going down. Uh, following the raid by the police that evening, a fight broke out between the police and a butch lesbian in handcuffs. As she was violently taken to the police station, she managed to escape several times into the throng surrounding the stone wall. She held her own against four police officers that she brawled with. And when I say Stormy brawled, she brawled. Because <laughs> butches don't do things by halves. No. Never. Cussing and shouting for ten minutes. So she brawled with four cops just cussing at them and punching them for ten fucking minutes straight. I mean, goals. Did she also invent um, women's wrestling? <laughs> you know what? Let's just say she like go across the gender divided wrestling. <laughs> I let's just say she did because I'm gonna let's yeah. invent that. We're just gonna let's, invent a fact right now. This is an invented fact. Yeah, well, you know what? The, with the stone wall, there are so many embroidered and things and embellishments. Let's just say that this was when <laughs> the Worldwide Women's Wrestling Federation began, and it Absolutely. was started by a lesbian, a black butch lesbian. Yeah, as fought, everything else was. Who fought, who fought cops? 
four for ten minutes cool. nonstop. Yeah. Fucking amazing. Uh, witnesses described the woman as, quote, a typical New York City butch. <laughs> and, a uh, quote, Dyke Stone Butch. A, a Dyke Stone Butch. I've always heard it up until now as a Stone Dyke Butch from Leslie Feinberg's Stone, um, Stone Dyke Butch Blues, I think is the name. But apparently, okay, this is how we say it too. Yeah, anyway, meh, whatevs. So a Dyke Stone Butch is, according to our friend Wikipedia, a Stone Butch lesbian who displays female butchness or traditional masculinity and who does not allow their genitals to be touched during sexual activity as opposed to a Stone Femme which I've never heard of, but you can't have one without the other, I guess. I don't know. Go to Wikipedia and update these. (laughs) I mean, I think this is from the olden times. Okay. Because in the 50s, like, this was this thing. I have heard of the – I've heard of Stone Butch. Yeah. I've never heard of Stone Femme. Um, Yeah. But, like I said previously – but it was – I kind of wonder, and I'm just wondering here, if maybe this was because some of the butches may have been trans. Mm. Yeah, and, that's possible. Mm-hmm. So I – and I think maybe it had something to do with that. Yeah. Uh yeah. And since there was really no language at that time for most people to really have access to, I think it had to do with that. So I think that it might have been trans men yeah. a lot of the time who would have been called Stone Butch. But anyway. What is – um? I actually don't think I, – I think that's a term I hear today. Like the – sorry, today's term is which one? Stone Dyke, stone butch. butch. Stone butch. What is that used for today? That's well, the term I hear today, but it's like the definition you gave doesn't feel like what I perceive that as today. That's the traditional definition. Of it a, still is. Okay. So that, that yeah. doesn't mean I don't have that education. Okay. Um, I don't know. It could be, be It could be used differently now, but as far as I know, that's all that I know when it comes to it. Because I just know about it mostly from like 1950s butch femme culture. Yeah. And that there was like this thing where if you were, where a lot of times there were many butch lesbians who wouldn't, who who wouldn't let their genitals be touched during sex. Yeah. But just, that's all I really when I, Yeah, I guess when I hear that today, and like, again, like as a, I'm not a lesbian, like that is one identity I absolutely do not, <laughs> you know, I have. <laughs> you can't have it all. I can't, you can't have it all. And it's like, I think that when I, um, when I hear butch, I know exactly what a butch is. Like, I feel like that's a term that's used really broadly. And I feel like when I hear stone butch casually in conversation, to me, it's more of like a personality. I hear it as a personality play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, they are like butch and they are quiet and reserved. 
but like that's that's just my own perception. Like right. I that is probably like it's probably a term I've never had defined to me. You know, it could have it could have you know evolved. I I have I don't really I hear butch all the time, but yeah. when it comes to that specific element, I don't hear that at all hardly. But then again, I live in Europe and. I'm not involved in the queer community here because let's just say what, how did you put it about the queer community here when I was telling you, I can't remember right now, but it was good. (laughs) Yeah, it was really good. I'm, you said something like, I'm sorry that the, all the queers there are like Republicans from Texas. (laughs) I think that was how you phrased it. So I don't really. They're really, yeah, I kind of left the queer scene here in Brussels because it turns out everyone here is an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> so during the little old pandemic, I, so I'm, I'm kind of out of touch with queer stuff firsthand because yeah. I have actively chosen to avoid the queer community in Brussels because I like vaccines. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's go back to Stormy. Yeah, let's go back to Stormy. Sorry yeah. for that tangent. That was a fun tangent, though. I appreciate yeah. it. Um, so anyway, Stone Butch. After she said her handcuffs were too tight, the woman was hit in the head by an officer with his baton. Even though she was now bleeding from a head wound, she continued to fight with the cops. It is not 100% certain that this particular woman was stormy, However, she has been identified by many witnesses as well as self-identified as the woman fighting the cops that night. According to the owner of the village lesbian bar, Henrietta Hudson, Lisa Canestracci, nobody knows who threw the first punch, but it's rumored that she did, and she said she did. She told me she did. There are news reports and letters by witnesses that have also conflicted with the woman being stormy. Many also remember several butches fighting back against the police while still in the bar. One of them was already bleeding from a head wound before she was escorted to the police van. So, yeah, there's it's kind of debatable. There are also many eyewitness testimonies that the arrest of the butch lesbian was not the singular event that kicked off the unrest, but one of many things going on simultaneously. According to one account, there was just a flash of group of mass anger. One main argument people kept coming back to was that the butch fighting the police was white. DeLarvery had straddled both sides of the segregationist Mm -hmm. shit fence, not to mention the gender shit fence, her entire life, Mm -hmm. which is something we have to keep in mind. Not only was she gender ambiguous, she was also racially ambiguous. Therefore, the argument that it was a white woman and not a black woman fighting the cops is a moot point. Regardless of the identity, when this person turned to the crowd and hollered, why don't you guys do something? And a cop threw her into the back of the van. The crowd went berserk. 
It was at that moment that the scene became explosive. This has led to some members of the LGBT plus community to refer to her as the gay community's Rosa Parks. Ultimately, it's needless to debate whether Delovery was the penultimate dyke who threw the first punch. That night, a community was fighting in solidarity against police violence and homophobic and transphobic society as a whole. I choose to believe the story of Stormy taking on four cops for ten minutes, throwing down like the dreamboat badass butch she was. Not only is that badass, but Mm -hmm. what we can say with certainty is that Stormy Delovery's post-Stonewall life was one devoted to queer liberation long after 1969, from the 70s up until the early 2000s, when you and I were walking around in New York, she worked as a bouncer at several lesbian bars in New York City, including Elaine Romagnoli's Cubbyhole, as well as Henrietta Hudson. Have you ever been to either of those? No. I mean, even when I lived there, I mean, and you know, RIP lesbian bars kind of cool. Globally, which is such a bummer. But when I lived there, there was only um, one lesbian bar that I knew of. Really? um, The one in Brooklyn? No, it was it was in the village. I think it was called Ruby Fruit Jungle. That's the name that comes to mind. I've heard Um, of it. We might have gone there, in fact. I think think we went there. Like I remember, I knew I went there several times, and I think I went with you. But it's been Mm -hmm. more than more than twenty years. Right. It's been it's been a minute. Yeah, it's been a minute. But yeah, um yeah, I I wasn't aware. Like that it was it was not on my radar. Well, I mean you're no. not a dyke. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So and I don't even know if these still exist. I wouldn't I don't, I don't think they do. Like I feel like I've definitely heard um I mean this is old information, but I've heard at some point like there is no more lesbian bars in New York City, but that would have been 10 years ago probably so i bet things have shifted again i mean like the the queer scene in new york moves around yeah like a lot of cities yeah like a lot of cities like the the neighborhood moved like when i lived there was chelsea and now it's um hell's kitchen and like there's a bunch of spots in brooklyn in terms of like the the gay man scene but i'm not as familiar with the 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 lesbian bars in new york and Mm -hmm. as they've opened and closed but i think there was a period of time that they were they were all they were all closed yeah it's so depressing. Yeah, RIP all lesbian bars that have closed because mm-hmm. that sucks. It's a total bummer. Um, during the de- these decades, so from the seventies through the two thousand early two thousands, Delivery was a volunteer street patrol worker who was known as the, like I said earlier, the guardian of the lesbians in the village who made sure that her, as she called them, her baby girls, were safe. From the New York Times obituary of Delivery, tall, androgynous, and armed. She held a state gun permit, so she was she had all her papers in place, let's just okay, say. Okay, Good for her. <laughs> Ms. Delivery. I expect nothing else from a butch. Butches have their lives together. <laughs> We are, you know what? Lesbians are good at organization. Especially Absolutely. Lesbians. 
The butchers, oh my god. Yeah, they have like shit on lockdown. It's great. I mean, butchers were like, what I fucking want instead of this fucking Barbie bullshit is a tool belt. Yeah. I, I, want a, I want a gun permit for New York State for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I want a tool a tool belt. I want a toolbox and I want to organize the shit out of this. There's okay. your first clue, Hetros. If you've got a little <laughs> signed a signed girl and you you want to buy her all a bunch of pink shit. If she wants to organize shit, I'm sorry, but... You just go to the Homo Depot. It's called the Homo Depot for a reason. It is, and it goes both ways. It yeah. just runs better. Both ways. <laughs> but we all, know, we all know who's really going there. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, tall, androgynous, and armed, she held a state gun permit. Ms. DeLavery roamed Lower 7th and 8th Avenues and points between into her 80s, patrolling the sidewalks and checking in at lesbian bars. She was on the lookout for what she called ugliness, which for, to her meant any form of intolerance, bullying, or abuse of her baby girls. She literally walked the streets of downtown Manhattan like a gay superhero, she was not to be messed with by any stretch of the imagination. And I would never want to fuck with her again on her bad side. No. Up until the day she damn died, I would terror, I would be terrified to piss her off, which is also a key element to being a successful butch. Yeah. I mean, and you would, but you would have been under her wing even when, even back in the days when you were, you know, straight quote-unquote yeah or maybe was ace <laughs> maybe Selma from scooby-doo which i think was what my gender expression <laughs> was at that time. gender and sexuality was velma my whole velma. is velma i feel like she would have seen you and been like i got you boo like she would have absolutely like brought you under her wing she would have she would have known exactly what was going on she would have known everything. I would have told her everything. I would have had a big crush on her because yeah. she was awesome. So, yeah, I would never be on her bad side. There's no way. No, no, there's no way. You would you would absolutely be like somebody, somebody that she protects from the ugliness. Totally. Yes. And um, Stormy also performed in and organized benefits for battered women and children when she was asked why at her advanced age she still did this work, she said, somebody has to care. People say, why do you still do that? I said, it's very simple. If people didn't care about me when I was growing up with my mother being black, raised in the South, I said I wouldn't be here. And she lived in the famous Hotel Chelsea. What? Yeah. Thriving among the community of actors, writers, artists, and musicians at the hotel. And she continued working as a bouncer for Henrietta Hudson until she was 85 years old. Did she live in the Chelsea Hotel, like, for a long time? Uh-huh. Like, throughout okay, so the 70s until the 2000s. My friend Ashley who you've met, um, 
when she moved to New York to go to FIT, she uh-huh. forgot to figure out housing, which is a, <laughs> kind of a nasty story. And so she lived in the Magnolia or she lived in the um the Chelsea Hotel for a semester. That's right. She did. Well, yeah. she so probably- I, feel like I, need, I feel like I need to ask her if she remembers um yeah. Stormy because I feel like, I don't know. Well, she would have. She lived her there during the same time, then. Yeah, it sounds like they were there at the same time. Okay. Uh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, she lived there. I think ever from, from the seventies until she uh, had to go to a nursing home. Yeah, I mean that that actually puts more overlap in where I would have been hanging out because right. the hotel was in the Chelsea neighborhood, and the Chelsea neighborhood was the neighborhood when I was living there. Hmm. And I was hanging out kind of in Brooklyn and in Chelsea regularly. And mm-hmm. so, like, I was thinking she was mostly in the village, which was too rich for my blood at that point. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. More more reasons to go under hypnosis and see if I, like, ever saw her. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 2010, she moved to a nursing home in Brooklyn as she had begun suffering from dementia. I fucking hate dementia. Though her memory was failing, her memories of her childhood and the Stonewall Uprising were strong. She passed away of heart failure in her sleep on May 24th, 2014. None of her immediate family members remained alive anymore, but a strong support system of chosen family had been by Delivery's side. Henrietta Hudson's owner, Lisa Canistracci, had uh, become one of her legal guardians. She had several. Um, and Stormy Delivery's funeral was held on May 29th, 2014, at the Greenwich Village Funeral Home. In uh, sorry, on June seventh, twenty twelve, Brooklyn Pride Inc. honored Stormy Delavery as the at the Bro- at the Brooklyn Society for Ethical Culture. Michelle Parkerson's film Stormy, the Lady of the Jewel Box, was screened. On April twenty fourth, twenty fourteen, Delavery was honored alongside Edith Windsor by the Brooklyn Community Pride Center for her fearlessness and bravery, and was also presented with a proclamation from New York City public advocate Letitia James. In June 2019, DeLavery was one of the inaugural 50 American pioneers, trailblazers, and heroes inducted on the National LGBTQ Wall of Honor within the Stonewall National Monument, in New York City's Stonewall Inn. The SNM is the first U.S. national monument dedicated to LGBTQ rights and history, and the wall's unveiling was timed to take place during the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. So sources that I used for this were www.nps.gov, a Stormy Life by ITL Media, which is on YouTube from June 30th, 2009. 
uh, Stonewall, the Riots that Sparked the Gay Revolution by David Carter, uh, Stormy DeLavery, early leader in the gay rights movement, dies at 93 by William Lord, uh, Yardley from the New York Times. And that is the story of Stormy DeLavery. I am so glad you told me about her because I feel like she is a person from history that we should know more about and talk more about and hear more about. Um, I mean, Marsha P. P. Johnson, of course, like she's amazing and we're really glad to have her her as part of our queer history and be able to talk about her and know her story. But I feel like this story is just as important. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like a name that hopefully it's in the history books as they, as places start teaching more queer history. Yeah. Um, I was just looking up, this is a quick Google search. I was wondering if they ever gave her a cameo in the show Pose. Oh, she died before that ever came out. Well, no, not not the not her. Uh, sorry, her character. Like I oh, wonder if they. Oh, 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 sorry. As, like they ever gave like uh, it seems like at some point there would have been some overlap there, right? Like there could have been a moment of respect to be like she is a queer person who is part who is like maybe part of the trans community. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely is overlapping in the West Village with the women oh, from Pose. Like it just seems like the women from Pose are people that she would have been watching out for. Oh, for sure. And, like, I just Googled it, and, like, obviously Google's not infallible, but, like, it didn't come up with anything. And I'm, like, I'm a little bit surprised that they didn't um, bring her in. They didn't, like, make an effort to sort of bring her in as, like, a a real person who might have been there, you know? Yeah. I think that – well, I would – yeah, I know they never I don't remember her ever being mentioned or any anyone even like her kind of being depicted on that show. Yeah. Um and also she didn't I don't think she went uptown that frequently. I think that her stomping grounds were kind of limited to the village. But a lot of the women from Pose, um that's where they turned their tricks. Like they went and worked in the village. Oh yeah. Like that was that was like a that's why like Christopher Street and the West Village is such an important part of um yeah. history. So she was living in Chelsea, which is just a little okay. bit north of the village. But it's uh-huh. all that everything you mentioned, like that would have been overlapping okay. pretty dramatically with like her, her territory. I mean sure. Stonewall yeah. is in the neighborhood where a lot of the, the women uh, from Pose were working right like this christopher street pier mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it just seems like there's an overlap there that like um i don't know it, it, it i feel like it, it that would have been a good place to like have a little bit of her history pop in and maybe they did maybe they didn't google is not google is fallible and like i wasn't watching for her at the time but it's mm-hmm. like it just seems like they're she would have been watching out for those girls like she would have been absolutely watching out for them Totally. Yeah, I don't, I don't from, I I have a pretty good memory of that show because I have a very selective memory about things I care about. One of them was Pose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't ever remember anyone like her being depicted. Because yeah. I think I would have gotten excited about it because I'm a big history geek, which is high. This is why I'm doing a podcast. But. <laughs> I mean, a, wo- a woman of color or a, wo- a woman of androgynous race. Mm-hmm. Um, or and a woman of androgynous race, not or and, um, in that show, walking around with a shotgun. <laughs> I know that would have been shit. That would have been so cool. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been so, so cool. cool. 
<laughs> She's like the only person that should have ever owned a gun. <laughs> I'm down with that. Like, if I'm also in America, become only Stormy. <laughs> She's the only one. I feel like that's fine. She might, she, might have passed, she might have passed away, but like she can still have it. It's all good. I trust her. She's, oh, her st- she, give her a statue. Give it a give it a gun. She can have it. It's cool with her. It's not cool with anyone else. It's fine. Yeah, I think also though, one thing also. I mean, not like it needed me. Well, we always talk about. You always hear about this in like lesbian discourse and in lesbian writing and things about lesbian erasure. And one thing I've noticed just doing this podcast and covering the notable queers and everything is how harder it is to find out about lesbians, to know about lesbians, because lesbians have not been given the same treatment as mm-hmm. as men. And I think that, you know, um, it's not it's not a surprise to me that she has been so overlooked because she um, she's a dyke. And she Do you have any um, hypotheses of why dykes are overlooked in queer history? We're not as, like, sexy, I think, mm. as gay men. I think that there's, like, when we... I think if people want to go out and see a movie about a, a queer... About the queer experience in history, they're more... They're going to be given the queer male experience in history because there were so much more possibilities for men in the past. Yeah. Live a more authentic life or who could live, you know, separate from traditional society. And women have always been under control of, of, you know, you have to have a family, you have to be under, you have to be in subservience. Uh, you don't have as many intrinsic freedoms from the beginning. So mm-hmm. your story isn't given as much attention uh, and you also don't have much and much opportunity. Like if Oscar Wilde had been a woman, that would be a very different situation. I don't yeah. think we would know his name to start with. Yeah. No, I mean, all that's, um, I don't know. It's a thing to work on, right? Like it's a, yep. it's a thing that seems like it should have already changed, but it hasn't yep. changed enough yet. Like it's a thing to still focus on. Absolutely. And I think it's getting better, but only very recently has it started. Yeah. To. I mean, we started off this conversation kind of cracking a joke about the 25 drag queens and one drag king and hey, RuPaul, like, mm-hmm. why hasn't that changed yet? I mean, mm-hmm. fortunately, we have Dragula, which had two drag kings on it this season. Yay. Um, one, of them, one of them is a finalist, and we'll find out next week who, who wins. Ooh, I need to catch up. I love Dragula. And um, Throb Zombie is his name and he is love it love it Uh, but it's still it's like we kind of started off kind of cracking a joke about that right making making light of something that actually is a real problem you know it is yeah it's it's either easier to laugh than to cry um right (laughs) that's like the gay experience in a nutshell (laughs) absolutely (laughs) is oh i'm gonna i'm gonna make that a tagline for all, all queers everyone has to wear the shirt um but yeah it's um yeah, it's a thing to still work on to get that to get that visibility because stories like this are just 
there, I don't know. Like this is a, this is like a really like emotional story for me. I think partially because it's related to a time when I lived in New York and maybe she was someone who like I crossed paths with at some mm-hmm. point and, you know, and it's just like to, I, and I was telling Megan over message messenger earlier. It's like, I just feel like we talk a lot about intersectionality today. The this idea of like, what are your intersections of identity and to be like a person with multiple racial identities and multiple gender identities and one thing that she talked about also was that she was perceived as way younger than she was. Like she looked like she was 20 when she was in her forties. So that kind of having age identities, mm-hmm. you know, which is not a thing we really talk about, but ageism is a thing we talk about. Mm-hmm. And to also know that she um, came from a family with financial assets. <laughs> and like, if she hadn't had financial assets, her life would have been completely, completely different you know and just like mm-hmm. looking at those intersections I think is just so important to um know that that's not a new conversation either you know no. it's like that that like financial access the educational access the fact that her father was willing to be in her life mm-hmm. and grandfather is willing to be in her life are just things that are like surprising stories to hear from a hundred and hundred and some years ago like it's just so great that like that was the family she was born into and she was really fortunate and there oh, was yeah. privilege that she had there, even though, like, obviously other privileges were, you know, tough. Like, that was a thing that was, like, really great for her to have access to. Yes. And I think – and I – and I and also, for someone who didn't have a lot of privileges, who experienced a great deal of cruelty in her life, she mm-hmm. was always very, very aware of her privilege. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, because she brought it up when she was in her 80s being interviewed, you know, growing up in the Deep South as a biracial person, you know, she was lucky to have that. Yeah. And so she was aware of that. And she was very aware that there were others who didn't have that. Yeah. And like being biracial is another thing that today it's like we still need to work on. Like that's still a... That's still like a massive thing that we need to be able to work on because it's we like we like putting things in black or white. And like that's not a racial thing. That was a, you know, we see the world in black and white color mm-hmm. thing. It's like we that's what humans like to do. And that's not people's lived experience. Mm-mm. You know, and it's like that's a thing we can absolutely um, help people who are multiracial, biracial, multiracial, like make sure that they have space in society, make sure that they feel that story is set up for them because the story is set up for them (laughs) totally and I mean it's and I just think so much when I hear stories like stormies about all of the stormies that are out there that we Mm -hmm. never get to hear about yeah and especially and I'm going to be very specific especially lesbians Mm -hmm. because I I mean it's it's something that has always really hit me because um, I always you know I've always really identified as a queer guy too mm-hmm. and I definitely there is a part of me that is a queer man and people always thought that was stupid and silly but it's true it's just part of who part of who I am but you know I'm also a lesbian and as a lesbian I've felt erasure my whole life mm-hmm. I've felt that I'm not as good as the gays. Yeah. That I'm not as valid as the gays, that I'm not as interesting or dynamic or whatever as the gays. Like I've always felt that we're second tier, third tier maybe. And um 
people don't really care so much about lesbians. We're not very romantic unless it's for the straight male gaze, which is just, you know, disgusting. Um, You know, we're not unless we're like for that reason, we're pretty insignificant. I feel Um, I don't feel that we're significant, but I felt that we're treated like we are. And um, just because. I don't know, whatever reason, just because we're women and or in my case, I'm non-binary, but I also am a woman. But um, I, it's always been a frustration, something very frustrating to me. I've always felt that that lesbians have kind of been used by cis gays as a joke. Mm. I've also, of course, heterosexual society has always treated us as a joke. Um, yeah, or the fetish. Or a fetish. Yeah. And that we're ugly. Like, I've always just, you just get these, like, things like lesbians are ugly, lesbians are dirty, uh, lesbians are boring or unpleasant or, you know, just blah. Like, they're not fabulous. They're not, you know. Going back to something you had said earlier, too, just about, like, the southern glamour of being a gay man, it's, like, I did, I think about, um, I'm just rambling here, but I, I think ahead. about, like, Hollywood and movies and television and the, the history of the sissy. Mm. Sissy being an entertainer is kind of, like, part of what the sissy is. And, like, I don't know, we were also talking about, like, lesbians and butches, especially, like, and their ability to, like, just organize and mobilize and take care of shit. It's, like, we need that so much in society, but uh, it doesn't necessarily easily make a good, entertaining movie quickly. No. Whereas Disney can come on stage, and in 30 seconds, people are laughing because it's, like, quote-unquote, fun to laugh at, like, an mm-hmm. effeminate. Like, that is, a that is, like, a thing that we have, you know? And it's, like... I hear you. Like I hear, I hear you on that. But it's like as a queer man, non-binary person, it's like I absolutely am. Like, but the lesbians kind of do so much work to get the queer society to function properly. Totally. It's. I feel that it's a very and I and you're absolutely right. That's you know how queer femme men are trivialized. Mm-hmm. And um, I definitely yeah. I mean. I see that there's a lot of organizing more, like a lot with lesbians in particular. When we think of the AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. we don't nearly talk about how the lesbians were the ones holding up the queer community. Yeah. And I that's was actually, heartbreaking. I was actually thinking as you were just talking a minute ago about mm-hmm. how there's, I mean, I live in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area now, and it's like there's there's definitely... I mean, gay man trauma or AMAB trauma around the AIDS crisis, because this is like one of the epicenters in the world. And we talk about that as part of like the sort of AMAB gay man history. And like, there is definitely this like, and the lesbians took care of us. But I'm like, there has to be like a name to the lesbians. Like there has to be like a Stormy in that community who's like one of the pillars who really set up for it. And I, and I, I'm faulting myself, but not knowing who she is or, Maybe maybe we don't know who she is. Like maybe we don't. Like we don't, and we should. And that's why we. I'm doing this. Yeah. Because we should. But we have to do the research because it's not given to us. Because 
lesbians. It's it's not our fault that we don't know. It's it's really the fault that of like queer media to not mm-hmm. be bringing this out more. Yeah. On every level. And I and I don't want to badmouth gay men, which I'm not doing. No. But we we hear a lot about gay men and in many ways gay men have a lot more privileges than the rest mm-hmm. of the queer gay white cis gay men. Mm-hmm. have more privilege than the majority of the rest of the queer population. Absolutely. Is a fact. Yeah, that's to- that's totally a fact. It's still it's still male privilege. Like the, exactly. The, the, yeah. And it, and when you incorporate being white, that's mm-hmm. a, that's even more of one. Um so we also I mean lesbian erasure within queer uh, conversation when we talk about queer rights when we talk about um, queer history is a huge thing that we need to give more respect to mm-hmm. because when I was hearing about St- when I was researching Stormy I thought about this one and I don't even know her name um, this one Chicago Dyke who owned and ran a bar in my old neighborhood in Avondale and um it was a great bar, totally mid-century, like trapped in time of a Floridian, like holiday, holiday getaway, really incredible place. And this really old butch dyke owned it and she had owned it and run it with her partner who, who was a femme who had passed on uh, for years and years and years. And, she was amazing. I only met her once, but she was like a like the backbone of of like old school mid century nineteen fifties dyke uh Chicago dyke um scene. And there are so many people like that and so many lesbians like that. Yeah, it's so good. I I really hope that um I get to learn more about lesbians from you in the series. Um, I mean, I know that I know that it's not necessarily easy to find and that get have all the history as you just you just talked about why that's why that's difficult. But I do think it's important, you know, and I, I want to learn more from you. Well, I am happy to uh, to help because next time we're going to be talking about another Ooh. lady lover. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan. Yeah, thank you, Megan. Like, I know that you put a lot of time into this, and, you know, all I did was watch a six-minute teaser video to get excited and then hang out with my best friend. Yeah. From real life, but on the Internet. <laughs> That's and as always, you started with a ten-minute seance of, are you, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Because that's, that's part of the Zoom world. That is. It's, it's basically talking to ghosts, except <laughs> and you're frustrated. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> shit. I, you know, if it's just we we're just ghosts in the making. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we're just meat suits carrying ghosts. What is a soul? A soul <laughs> is a ghost in a meat suit. Ghost in a meat suit. That's Ghosts who we are. That's suit. human beings in a nutshell. Ghosts in meat suits. Yeah, that sounds like a um, a Lady Gaga runway runway carpet from like ten years ago. 
Ghost, 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 meat suit, meat suit, meat suit, raw, raw, ghost, ghost, meat suit, meat suit, meat suit. That's basically every Lady Gaga song. Yeah, she only has one song, and this is different lyrics. I don't yeah. know. You just repeat one word over and over again, and then get, make an animal noise, go like raw, 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 and then there goes poom, poom, poom. We're recording an album right now, Megan. Just so everyone knows, we just recorded an album. RuPaul is going to publish it next week. RuPaul's <laughs> millionth song, stolen from Megan. <laughs> Wait till you. Well, well, you know, next up will be my Taylor Swift album. <laughs> I, you know, I am from Kansas City. You gotta, you know, because. Because now the worst thing ever is that if you're from Kansas City and you're on Facebook, because I'm old and I use Facebook, all you ever hear about is the fucking Chiefs and Taylor Swift, two things I don't like. Yeah. Kansas City just kicks my ass every fucking time. And I bet (laughs) now I lost the one person who listens to this podcast because I said I didn't like Taylor Swift. Oh. I don't care. I'm old. Anyway, I love you. Think you've got 40 more years or so of life to get even more curmudgeonly, and I'm here for it. <laughs> I've been waiting for this my whole life because I'm 50 years old, and I only have five years left. What six? I don't even. I can't count. I have just calculia. Anyway, until you hit 50. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I have. I have like six years left. So I have the same. Yeah, we've got the same. Yeah. Six years until I reach my ultimate destiny, which I'm so fucking <laughs> about. Because I'm the longest road trip five. ever. <laughs> Love it. All right, Megan. See okay. you next time. See you okay. soon. All right. Love you. Love you too. Bye. You can reach Dark Habits at Dark Habits Mag. That's M A G at gmail.com. You can visit our website at darkhabits.net, and you can visit us also on social media at Dark Habits on Facebook, at Dark Habits Mag, again, that's all one word, M-A-G, on Instagram, and that you can listen to our podcast on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to shout out to us, like, follow, and subscribe. Thanks again.